God, thank you that your scriptures uh, have stood the test of time. There is no more important, more famous, more widespread ethical, moral commandments listed anywhere in all the world. And so many societies have based their laws on these. And so it's fascinating that an insignificant number of former slaves out in the desert would receive something and we'd still be talking about it all these years later. That, of course, speaks to you, your character, and the way in which your word endures. Uh, we've come back out tonight because we want to continue to, to honor you and grow. So would you help us to that end? In Jesus' name, amen. So if you want to turn uh, with me in your Bibles back to Exodus 10, that's where we'll be. And uh, I know that we'll have people uh, up and around and with kids, and so please don't feel any hesitancy about any of that at all. Uh, this morning we covered the first of the four commandments um, because those first four deal primarily with our relationship with God. This evening we'll think together about the last six, and in order to sort of get our minds back around how they all fit together, I'll just go ahead and read them all again. So Exodus 20, uh, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven or in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I talked a lot about that one this morning, so jump down to verse 12. And this begins the new material for tonight. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land, that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when the people, I'll stop there. It's the end of verse uh, 17. The main point of these verses is that all those who have been rescued by God must live for God by obeying his commandments. And so if we were to ask the question, what does God expect? Then this would be a correct, apt list. Rightly understood, the 10 commandments form the bedrock of the way um, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, people are called to live. Now, you'll notice if you look closely that the first four are all vertical, meaning they deal with primarily our interactions with God, how we worship God, how we respond to his love for us. And then the last six are all horizontal, meaning they all relate to how we relate to each other. The first four 
are about responsibilities towards God. The last six are about our good obligations to each other under God. The right worship of God overflows into the right relationship between people. Uh, One common way people have referred to the Ten Commandments throughout the centuries is that there's two tables. The first table deals with God. The second table deals with people. Now, the two, of course, are inseparable. They, They go together. We have no hope of relating well to one another apart from first understanding who we are and relating to God well. Love from God back to God is the conduit through which we can treat one another and our neighbor with love. Um, This evening, we wanna think tonight about how to love people well. I don't know if that's the way you normally think of the Ten Commandments, but that's what they're about. They're about love. They define what real love looks like. I'm gonna talk about that in several different ways tonight. So just like this morning, I just wanna walk through them bit by bit and then try to do some summary at the end. So verse 12 is the first horizontal command. Honor your father and mother. What the first commandment is to the vertical, those first four, the fifth command is to the horizontal. That is, it describes the foundation for all the others. Honoring father and mother is the basis for learning how to live lives of love toward all people. If there's one of these tonight that I think we could probably make the most ground on, it would probably be this one. If you don't get this lesson ordered in your mind correctly as a child, it's gonna be extremely difficult as an adult to catch up. And what I mean is, God has designed the home to be the context in which someone learns that authority is good, that authority is right, that authority is helpful. So when mom says, don't touch the burner, and dad says, don't run out in the street, the child doesn't think of those commandments or shouldn't as they get old enough as cruel taking of fun, but rather as protective and helpful, right? But that starts at an age that a child has no idea why. They're simply taught to obey because you need to obey mom and dad. That initial response to authority is what is supposed to ground even the authority that God has over people. A child will learn to follow parents before learning to follow God. A child will learn how to follow parents before following teachers before following any authority in society and in the church. This is the most basic love of people. It's hard to catch up, as I said. We learn to respect other forms of authority as adults by being kids who learn to respect our parents' authority. If of these 10 there is confusion today, in the average church, my guess is this is the one where there is the most confusion. If I put that a different way, 
the lack of calling for kids to honor their father and mother is part of why there is so much chaos in society today. As the home has broken down, ultimately so has society. Honoring authority structures in the church and in society begins not in adulthood, but when you don't understand why you're being told to do or not do something, but you do it anyway. Parents, if I could put this uh, rather provocatively, God has given you authority over your children for their good. And it is a mistake for you to think of yourself primarily as your child's friend. That is not what you are, first of all. You're the parent. Now, can you exercise that authority in a friendly way? And do you want a close relationship with your children? Of course. But too often I hear people talking about their kids as though they're your peers. And you can't be okay with them being upset with you. That's getting parenting very, very, very backwards. Understand yourself to be God's imperfect but good gift to teach your children to live under authority. And if they learn it then, they're very likely for it to stick with them in other forms of authority as they get older. I think that's the reason for the second half of this verse, that you may live long in the land. I don't think that is saying, parent, if you obey your, kid, if you obey your parent, then you're gonna live a long, long, long life. I think rather what it's saying is, you're gonna flourish in the blessings of God if you learn as a child how to obey. If you don't learn that as a child, it's gonna be hard to be a productive adult that is in the blessings of God. Now, how does one obey imperfect parents? That's an important question. And it's the same thing as asking, how does one obey imperfect teachers or bosses or governmental leaders or elders? Because in the Ten Commandments, we have uh, each of them is, is a bucket. The scriptures never call them the Ten Commandments. They're called the Ten Words in a couple other passages. And the idea is that each one of them is a word from God. And they're sufficient in and of themselves because they speak to everything that goes in that category. So to speak to the authority of parents is ultimately to speak to all kinds of authority. Does that make sense? Okay. So how do we honor flawed authorities? One good thing that's happened in society over the last decade or so is a lot of flawed authority, both in the church and in society, has been exposed. That's been a good thing. But one negative that has happened is we have taken on a posture that we're the only people that know right from wrong and what's good for us, and anyone in any kind of authority is a moron. And that's just not true. And that's going to eventually affect your attitude toward God if you think that way about the authorities he has placed in your life. Again, all this starts in the home. It starts as the way a child is 
lovingly cared for by the good protective work of their parents and them learning to honor them. So how do we honor flawed authorities? You don't have any authorities over you that are not flawed. None of them. Not even your elders. Not even a parent who loves their child with perhaps the deepest kind of love many of us will ever experience. How do you, how do you know how to follow or honor flawed authorities? I think the only answer, frankly, that makes sense to me is that we honor flawed authorities by looking to our Heavenly Father who has no flaws. And so a teenage child who's become an adolescent, who's still at home, still knows I must honor father and mother, but is beginning to flex the muscles of independence like they ought to, and has come to see mom and dad are not perfect. In fact, I can tell you these three or four things they're likely to sin in, in particular circumstances. Kids are like sponges. They notice all of that. How does that child, that adolescent, continue to honor father and mother? What's well, by realizing as I honor father and mother, ultimately I'm honoring God. So I look through the, uh, the authority placed uh, over me because as an ultimate act of worship, I'm obeying the commandment. And the Father is never flawed. So I can submit to somebody imperfect because I know ultimately I'm submitting to God. Now that of course has limits if you're being commanded by an authority to do something that's directly in contradiction to God's word, then you have to say like the apostles, I'm sorry, but I must keep preaching the word, for example. But the number of times you're gonna be placed in that situation is not high. Obedience to imperfect authorities is ultimately obedience to the perfect God. So keep your eyes set on him and the authorities he's placed in your life. I've dwelled here quite a while because I really think there's a lot for us to learn here. But let's move on. Uh, the sixth commandment is shorter but it's certainly not insignificant. Verse 13 says, you shall not murder. Now it's tempting to think this commandment applies to a relatively small number of people who have ever lived. We're tempted to look around the room and think, phew, at least I know nobody in this room did that one today. However, there's more here than meets the eye just like in all these commandments. For example, commenting on this verse in Matthew, Jesus applied it to sinful anger or to hurling insults. Why? Because the commandments are both external and internal. The external commandment is don't use a gun and shoot another person lawlessly. But the inside is don't harbor anger towards someone in a sinful way. Don't use your mouth in a way that does violence to them. 
So the commandment is not on the ultimate end, but everything that might lead up to that end. That's why Jesus applied it in that way. The Ten Commandments, while relatively succinct, are vast in scope. Literally every biblical command, as well as all Christian ethics, flow out of these Ten Commandments. That's why Jesus can say, sinful anger towards someone is a breaking of the Sixth Commandment. If that's a new idea to you, look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus very often explains the Ten Commandments. Brothers and sisters, this sixth commandment calls us to treasure life from womb to tomb. That is from the moment of conception until the very last breath. The scope in terms of its duration is enormous. You shall not murder, of course, means abortion and euthanasia are off the table for consideration. Why? Well, because God forbids the taking of life unlawfully. Life from womb to tomb is precious. It must be protected because all people are made in the image of God. Now, not all of us have the same amount of net worth or intelligence or aptitudes. Some people are much higher than most of us in the room. Some people are much lower than most of us in the room. But all people matter. And they matter because they're made in God's image. And thus, they're of infinite worth. My younger brother is a pastor in Arcadia, about 20 minutes from here. And they have a dog named Jonesy, named after Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'll tell you something of the way preachers think, or at least my brother. And a couple days ago, that their dog ate something that has not been agreeable with it. And they've spent um, more money than they thought they would ever spend trying to help this dog who has been to the dog ER twice. And now the conversation is, how long do we let this go? When should we put the dog down? We don't talk like that about people because dogs aren't made in the image of God. People are of infinite worth compared to animals. We're the only thing God's made that is made in his image. It is crazy that there are some countries where you can choose to have yourself put down like a dog. We should see that God is the originator of life and God is the taker of life. And we trust him and serve people from womb to tomb. Now, while you may never have been close to murdering someone, let's think of the applications of this. Have you harbored bitterness toward a former friend and at least in your heart dwelled on repeated things you'd like to say that are less than godly. 
Has there been internal rage that made your blood boil? You might stand and smile, but inside, is there a, I wish there wasn't a sixth commandment. Have you been violent with someone? Getting your way at the expense or even at the threat of physical violence? Then beloved, according to Jesus, you've broken the principle of this commandment. Now, before going on to the seventh commandment, you should probably hear me say that you shall not murder shouldn't be understood as a prohibition of things like serving in law enforcement or the military, nor is it a rejection of capital punishment or legitimate self-defense or fighting in a just war. Those are all exceptions. What makes them exceptions is there are, they are things about which the scripture indicates that the taking of life is lawful. But the vast majority of circumstances any of us will ever be in would apply much more to the prohibition, you shall not murder. Let's go on to the seventh commandment. Seventh commandment says, you shall not commit Adultery, uh, no pun intended, but Kyle, or uh, I think the air turned off. It's getting super hot up here. If it were possible for you to check that, that would be amazing. Uh, Spencer's checking it on his phone. Again, no pun intended. <laughs> All right, the most immediate directive here in this commandment is that married people must not have sex with anyone but their spouse. Yet this basic principle applies or sets a pattern for all behavior that is appropriate sexually. Now I've told you that six times, I'm not just making it up when we get to the seventh. The basic principle is this, namely, if you are in a heterosexual marriage, then embrace and enjoy sex. And all of us, in the strength that God provides, refrain from any form outside the marital relationship. That's what you shall not commit adultery means. Church, God gave sex as a good gift for particular purposes. Ripping it out of the husband-wife context negates those good purposes. It can no longer accomplish what it's for, and it ensures bad outcomes. But more than those humanly speaking bad outcomes, it dishonors God. I made a list of a few things that came to mind. Fantasies about being with somebody else. Fornication. That is, sex before marriage, pornography, lust, homosexuality. All of these were told to refrain from by this seventh commandment. Now remember the, the way these all started back in verse two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
Perhaps the quickest way back to the house of slavery is to enter through the doorway of sexual sin. If you're involved in what you must not be, then tonight is a great night to stop. In fact, it's the perfect night. Maybe even unknowingly, that's why you're here. Is to hear from God, him invite you back out of slavery into the freedom that's yours in Christ. Repent, and when we're done, tell somebody in the room. Because we need help from each other if we will walk in purity, obeying this command. Fairly often I hear people um, express inaccurate understandings of the Bible's teaching related especially to things in the realm of sexual sin. And at least right now, and it seems like this isn't going away anytime soon, that is especially true when it comes to matters of LGBTQ issues. Very often people will say there are weird Old Testament commands that no longer apply today. Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Have You ever heard any of those kinds of things? I hear them not only from antagonistic people, but from people who seem to be really sincere. And so what I thought would be helpful tonight is to show you a New Testament passage that tells us the same thing. So if you would flip with me all the way over to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1. And we'll spend just a couple of moments on a text there. 1 Timothy 1, we can gain two big insights from this passage. So it's two scoops of ice cream. 1 Timothy 1. Now, um, as I read it, keep in your mind the 10 that we've already read, okay? Chapter 1, verse 8. Incidentally, we're going to study 1 Timothy in the fall. So this is a great preview. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, the profane. Now watch the list closely. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God, with which I have been entrusted. Now, the first scoop is notice that it says the law is good. What God commands is designed for our protection, for our benefit, to help us know him. It's a revelation of who he is. And it guides us into how to live blessed lives. It's good if we use it correctly. That's the first insight. The second scoop is why this list of commands? Have you ever thought that? Especially about the New Testament lists. 
they can seem arbitrary and like, oh, you're just picking on somebody. Why that list of things? Well, because maybe, maybe because it's not the morning and we're more awake now, notice that the order of the commandments is exactly the same as the second table of the Ten Commandments. Why that list of things? Well, because Paul knew his Ten Commandments and he's simply reciting them, explaining them, fleshing them out. So for those who strike father and mother, what is that? The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. For the murderers, sixth commandment, sexually immoral, seventh commandment. And then in no uncertain terms, he tells us that includes homosexuality. The scriptures are not muddled, messy, confusing, or difficult when it comes to this topic. They're very, very, very clear. Sex is a gift from God for pleasure and procreation in heterosexual marriages. Anything else is sin. Anything else must be resisted and run from with the help of brothers and sisters in Christ. The eighth commandment, well, it's pictured in the word enslavers, stealing people, taking their lives from them. The ninth commandment, liars and perjurers. Paul has his 10 commandments memorized and he's restating them to tell the church in Ephesus how the church is supposed to live and what they're to call people in society to. Christians must obey God with our sex and sexuality. Now, if you've sinned in this area, and guess what? Don't do it because it'll make them feel weird, but look around. Everybody in this room has failed in some way, shape, or form to obey this commandment. We universally share this. And so repent and accept the washing that comes from God let it wash let him wash away guilt and shame and then with the help especially men with men and women with women bring others into your struggle to walk in obedience that we might actually make progress in living this out now the eighth of the 10 commandments Strikes us as rather simple. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Why is that on this list of things? If you were going to make a list of 10, would that be on it? Well, remember, God is telling people how to live towards him and towards each other. And he's doing so in 10 big buckets. And so what God's telling us is respect people's personal property. That which someone has earned through hard work, don't take it by your own lack of work. Instead, if you want that thing, put the work in and then go get that thing. 
Can you imagine how different our lives would be if people weren't stealing stuff? I mean, the degree to which this is an everyday normal part of what we expect in life is unbelievable. It's everywhere. God told Israel to never carry away another person's goods. This would include things like swindling, cheating, defrauding, giving way to greed. The bottom line foundation under this commandment, of course, is the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Instead of stealing, we should nurture the understanding that God provides us with what we need as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We need not look around to what anybody else has. That's between them and God. What we have is what we have. And I think an enormous lesson, especially a church that has so many young people, need to embrace at a young age in your first job. If you're not content with what you have today, you will never be content with what you have tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. The needle keeps moving further and further and further and further until you're dead. And then you find out you wasted your life. Let's get in the habit of telling ourselves, what's mine is God's. If we looked at stuff like that, it would make a huge difference. The ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, verse 16. In the courtroom and in everyday life, God's people must be truthful with the ability to blast thoughts instantaneously all around the world via social media, it's never been easier to give way to the temptation to lie, embellish, and slander. Because you can do it in an instant, laying in your bed, when you get the first thought of being irritated by somebody. There is no longer an easy buffer to protect us from one another. When I first started in ministry, one of my mentors taught me, if you're upset with someone about something and you need to say something hard to them and you need to do that in writing, then write that letter, yes, I'm old enough, pre-email. Write that letter and then leave it sitting on your desk at least 48 hours. That has saved me from saying things that ought not to have been said. What if before we posted something negative about anybody, we waited 48 hours? The church ought not look like the world in how we speak. This is an area in which we can really grow. I think it's probably never been easier to give way to temptations of speech than today. But God's people are called to use our tongues and our thumbs to speak well of others, to speak truthfully in love, to intentionally run from gossip toward 
encouragement. The power of the tongue to do evil is matched only by the power of the tongue to do good. Do you know what you can accomplish in people's lives if you speak to them positively, kindly, affirmingly, sincerely? Many people who make up this church family, the only positive things they ever hear from anyone are in this church family. Our God says that what he says is true and therefore his people are to say what's true. What ought to mark the printed word in the speech of Christians? Well, basic kindness, not only towards each other but towards those with whom we disagree. Gentleness rather than hostility. Every word said in love. The 10th and final commandment is what we call a doozy. It's the theological term, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. To covet is to allow a a passing thought about a desire for something. It's to allow a passing thought to take root in our minds and hearts. Coveting is not a, a, a thought that flies through like an airplane and you didn't control the fact that it flew by. Coveting is saying to that thought plane, you can land and here's a place to put the plane for the night. And let me really, really think on that a lot. I want that. That's coveting. It's to tolerate and capitulate to an inordinate, unchecked longing for that which is another's. Now, I did it this morning. I've already done it tonight, but it fits here again. The way in which media is pushed at us now makes this more difficult. It's not the cause, but it certainly makes it easier to be part of the prey. Because what you're fed is specifically connected to what it is that you've clicked on before. And so you're constantly being fed if you've failed in the past, the specific way in which you've failed. YouTube, Instagram, all of these platforms are designed to suck you in because they make their money by how long you're on them. And they're going to hit you where you're most vulnerable. Now, does that mean don't use them? Maybe for a time, if you have to, in order to break cycles of sin. People made it just fine without this stuff but they're not evil in and of themselves. And so just be aware, why am I more tempted in this particular arena in the realm of covetousness? It might be directly connected to how long you're spending on these platforms. We gotta put tablets and phones down and spend time with actual people in non-curated lives 
No one's life is like what they post. Covetousness reveals the heart's discontentedness with what God has provided and mistakes what life is really all about. What's life about? Knowing God, loving God, and loving people. That's what we're all here for. Coveting arises out of the illusion that our lives are about self-consumption and that whatever we can gain by way of pleasure is what life is for. This grieves God, of course, but it also tremendously affects how we not only treat, but even think about other people. That is the second half of the Ten Commandments, Commandments 5 through 10. Those six commandments are about love. They articulate what it means to love God and love people. When we love God with the right kind of heart disposition, then we can see that through obedience to these commandments. And when the conduit with God is flowing well, experiencing his love and returning it to him with rightful worship, then that of course spills out into the last six of the commandments, loving people the way we're called to. The application of the 10 commandments can be expanded in lots of ways. Starting next Sunday, we'll see some of the ways in which those commandments continue to work themselves out. And tradition says that if you add up all the laws in the Old Testament, there's 613 of them, 613. That may sound like a lot, but there's a pretty famous story from several years ago when, uh, I don't remember if it was the Senate or the House, but they put together a committee to figure out how many laws America has. And that committee gave up. (laughs) They could not figure it out. They came back and officially said, we have neither the time nor resources to answer the question. There are simply too many. Now, where did the 613 come from? Well, 10 of them are the ones we've just studied. The other 603 simply flow out of this. Yeah, man, I'm bad with math. The other 603 merely flow out of the 10. That is, the 10 comprise the 613, but it also works the other way. Because when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What did he say? Love the Lord your God, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus just took the Ten Commandments. Love God, love people. And so, while it can flow this way in this massive number of Old Testament commandments, it also goes this way. God's commandments are about love. God's not after limiting your joy. He's after expanding it because you were made to love him and love people. Loving God and loving people, how? By obeying the Ten Commandments. Now, of those 603 other statutes, 
many of those statutes do not apply to us today. We'll look at a bunch of them in Exodus, starting next Sunday. For example, the sacrificial or ceremonial laws do not apply to us. We're not commanded to bring doves or lamb or goats to church. Can I get an amen? Amen. Jesus fulfilled all of them. And the civil laws that were given specifically to Israel, because they were a theocracy, they no longer apply either. There is no nation on the planet that is a theocracy. But the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the things we've been talking about in the morning and tonight, those are all repeated or restated in the New Testament, and they still apply. Yes, the commandment about the Sabbath has been updated, but these 10 still are ours to follow. The 10 are summarized by the two. And so let me just say, what does it mean to love God? It means with the right heart disposition to obey Him. How do you know what He expects you to do? You need look no further than Exodus 20. And what does it mean to love people? Well, people love is defined by these commands. We're to do the things, we're to refrain from doing the things those Ten Commandments prohibit and to do everything that they allow. And in so doing, the boundaries around beautiful, godly love have been set. Now in closing, and then I'd love to take a few minutes for questions. One author I read this last week said, the law is like a multi-tool. You know what a multi-tool is? Like if one of those things you carry on the side or you take when you go camping, it's in your bag or maybe you keep one in your car. You can simultaneously with one tool, pull out a splinter, screw in a loose screw, open a a can of green beans, and cut a piece of rope, just to name a few. These things are miracles. They're incredible. They have multi-uses. The law is a multi-use tool. It's designed by God to do a lot of different things. In Exodus 20, the main functions of the law law are twofold. They reveal the character of God because he's their creator. They are a verbal representation of who he is. Secondly, they teach. We tend to think of the law as an as a um, sort of an innate object, but it isn't that. The law in scripture, the word Torah means teaching. The law is designed to teach us how to live the very best kind of life. They teach the people of God how to live as God's redeemed people. Those are the two primary emphases of the law. So we've used the screwdriver and the knife, but there's more multi-uses. As the Bible unfolds, we also also know that the law reveals sin. 
and therefore it shows us our need for God's grace. It drives us to recognize our helplessness and to seek help from another. We saw this morning Israel's response that when they heard the Ten Commandments, they recoiled. How does the New Testament call us to respond? If you're taking notes, you might just jot down Hebrews 12, 18 to 25. I referred to this two weeks ago today. In Hebrews 12, the old covenant is contrasted with the new. And the contrast is drawn around two mountains. On the one hand, there's Mount Sinai, in which we're given a law that reveals sin, but cannot solve the problem of our sin. In the New Testament, through Christ, we're given Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We're given Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And so Jesus is the one who was the law keeper and yet on the cross he became the lawbreaker. Why? So that his law keeping, his righteousness, would be given to all who repent and believe. And all who repent and believe, their law breaking can be his. That's quite a trade. There is no better swap anywhere. And today, God writes his law on our hearts. And so the law is not an external thing. No, it's something in our salvation that is now written on our hearts, meaning God is about the work of transforming every one of his sons and daughters into Christ-likeness. And so he's changing us from the inside out that we would look like him, that we would obey these 10 commandments, that as we rely on his grace, we would look like the one through whom we have salvation. So you wanna obey? You wanna see what the 10 commandments look like in action? I'm so glad. (laughs) Read the 10 commandments and then read the gospels. You'll find it everywhere. Father, I am overwhelmed tonight that at the spur of a moment, a church family would come back on a holiday weekend to hear more rules. Praise you for what you've done in this church. Would you help us to grow? I pray this wouldn't be the end of the conversation around the Ten Commandments, but it'd be the start because there's much, much more there than even two sermons can give. Forgive us in the ways that we have failed and spur us on to live out what has been written on our hearts. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray.
Amen.